Chapter Eleven of *The Captain of the Nine by William Heiliger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven, A Fight Against Time. The Captain of the Nine and his roommate were panting a bit as they crossed the campus on a run. They had come up from the station at a sprinter's pace. Where are you going? Kennedy asked. A little pause after each word. Jenkins, what for? We must get Redway back. If he does reach home, there would be little use of him coming back. He wouldn't be in shape to play after a long train journey. They were going up the stone steps of Winslow Hall when Kennedy clutched Bartley's arm. Easy. If we go in gasping and choking and demanding has anybody seen Jenkins, the whole school will be following us around to find out what it's about. So although it was torture to do it, they waited on the stone steps until their breathing became normal. Casually they went through the building from the roof to the first floor, but none of the fellows they questioned had seen the coach. They met again on the stone steps outdoors. His lodgings, said Bartley, and they set off across the campus once more. A frightened boarding mistress answered their wild, impatient clangings of her doorbell. She told them severely that Mr. Jenkins was not in, and they walked slowly back to the campus. There was little use searching for the coach. Many of the students boarded with families near the school, and the coach was probably making the rounds of private houses, asking fellows who thought they could catch to come out on the morrow. If we could reach Redway with a telegram, suggested Kennedy. He might think we were trying to lure him back, Bartley answered. And besides, we couldn't explain satisfactorily in a telegram. The same thought was running through each boy's mind. Every minute that they stood there idly was taking the catcher half a mile farther from St. Mary's. "'Didn't Jenkins say something about changing cars at Arden?' Kennedy asked. "'That's it!' Bartley cried suddenly. "'That's our only chance! Come on!' Again the captain started off on a run. Kennedy charged along at his heels. "'What is it?' the pitcher demanded. "'We can telephone to Arden!' Bartley flung back over his shoulder. "'We'll catch him when his train pulls in!' "'Where are you going?' "'To the station. I want to use their telephone.' "'But the station closes after the 9.20 goes through. What time is it?' Still running, the captain plucked at his watch. Then came the noise of a locomotive and then the moving lights of a train. "'Too late!' gasped Kennedy. However, they did not slacken their pace. They turned into the road leading to the station. The station lights should have been blinking at them, but ahead all was blackness. Another moment and they came upon the agent walking rapidly toward them. "'May I use the telephone?' Bartley gasped. "'Station's closed,' said the man. "'But this is important,' the captain insisted. "'We'll lose the Rockton game if I can't telephone to Arden.' "'There are other telephones in the village.' "'They're not public phones.' "'You're a St. Mary's student?' "'Yes.' "'Dr. Norton has a telephone. Use that.' This was something that Bartley did not want to do. If the truth must be told, he stood in some slight awe of the fine old gentleman who was principal of St. Mary's. Besides, he reasoned that if he used Dr. Norton's telephone he would have to explain all about the telegram and he was not a bearer of tales. There was something about the man's attitude that spelled more than a surly refusal to accommodate. Suddenly the captain remembered that he had heard tales of a band of rowdy students who had once thought it fine fun to snowball the agent. The boy turned away with a sigh. Kennedy, however, was not yet ready to give up hope. A new plan had formed in his mind. "'What time does the 8.40 train get to Arden?' he asked. "'About 10.10,' the agent replied. "'Thank you.' The pitcher turned to Bartley. I don't know the road to Richfield, at least not at night, do you?" The captain nodded. Why? The summer hotel there is open until midnight. You could use their telephone. Bartley swung around. How could I get there? I'll run back and borrow Curtis's bicycle. I'll be waiting for you on the campus. The pitcher dashed off in the darkness. Bartley made a trumpet of his hands. See that there's oil in the lamp. The roads will be pretty dark. Long before the captain reached the campus, a bright moving light told him that Kennedy and the bicycle were waiting. While he straddled the saddle, the pitcher clamped metal guards about his trouser legs. "'I oiled it,' said Kennedy. 
Put graphite on the chain, too. Bartley was ready to mount. What time is it? Fifteen to ten. Can you make it? I must, said the captain, and was off. The lamp threw a bright radiance ahead. The first minute or two the way was smooth. He swung into the road leading to Richfield, and at once became conscious of the ruts. Over this rough thoroughfare the boy made as much speed as he dared. It dawned on him that should anything happen to his light he had no matches. Anyway, it was now too late to turn back. On either side of him a soft breeze made ghostly music in the branches of the lonely trees. Now that he was out of sight of the campus and the school buildings and alone on the dark road, little chills began to go up and down his back. His eyes, though, never once left the white semicircle of light that wavered ahead. Soon he decided that he must make better time. Speed on such a road at night was dangerous, yet he worked his legs faster. Almost instantly the front wheel struck a sharp depression and bounced, and almost without warning the lamp flickered and went out. Something like a sob caught in the captain's throat. A heavy blackness closed in around him. Instinctively his pace slackened. Then came a thought of Redway gone and the Rockton game lost. With a desperate thought that he must take chances of mishap, he pushed violently at the pedals. "'If I hit anything,' he gasped and gripped the handlebars as he felt the jostle of a ragged rut. After that the ride became a nightmare. His eyes were straining at the darkness and seeing nothing. After a while his imagination began to picture rocks and the trunks of trees directly ahead and that was agony. Yet he kept plugging doggedly at the pedals and was totally unconscious that tears were running down his cheeks. So he kept on through the night. It seemed that it was hours since he had left Kennedy. Would he ever reach the hotel? Would he get there too late? Suppose the train to which Redway changed pulled out right after the arrival of the 840. A turn in the road that he made by instinct, and there, far up ahead, a light flared dully. The boy's heart leaped. At last he was approaching Richfield. The light came toward him, but oh, so slowly. Finally he passed it. Where was the hotel? He could hear music, mellow, measured dance music. He followed the sound. Men sitting on the hotel porch saw a boy ride to the wide steps, spring from a bicycle, and leave it to fall where it would. "'Is this the hotel?' "'This is it, Sonny,' called a cheery voice. The captain of the nine went up the steps, across the porch, and into the hotel office. "'Telephone!' he gasped. He saw the instrument before the question was answered, and quickly had the receiver off the hook. "'Number, please?' asked the voice. He remembered then that he did not know the number, but perhaps Central did. "'I want the railroad station at Arden,' he called. "'There are two depots at Arden. I'll give you information.' Two railroad stations at Arden. Bartley's eyes saw the office clock. Ten oh eight. In two minutes Redway's train would be in and—' "'What's the matter?' asked the same cheery voice that the captain had heard on the porch. "'In trouble?' The two minutes were passing. The voice, though, seemed to soothe. Harassed, bewildered at this new turn of affairs, Bartley, almost without knowing it, found himself pouring his tail into older ears. "'I must get a fellow, or we'll lose the biggest game of the season. He changes cars at Arden.' "'For where?' asked the voice sharply now. "'Detroit?' "'Where did he board the train? What station?' "'St. Mary's.' "'What time is the train due at Arden?' "'At ten-ten.' It was now almost ten-oh-nine. The boy knew it almost without looking at the clock. The man reached for the telephone directory hanging under the instrument. "'We won't wait for information,' he said. "'He's now on a central-western train. That's the road that runs past St. Mary's. The train for Detroit leaves from the northern Michigan depot. We must hurry, mustn't we?' His fingers went rapidly down a page. We want the public telephone at the Central Western Depot. Ah, that's the number. You're not used to a telephone, Sonny. Let me use it. Almost before he knew it, Bartley was away from the phone. He heard the man's voice. Hello, Central. Never mind information. Arden, 500. Hurry, please. This is important. The clock ticked away three or four valuable seconds. The man spoke without turning his head. Who do you want, Sonny? Redway. Charles Redway. This time the man half swung around. The St. Mary's catcher? Yes, sir. A silence settled over the office, and the hotel clerk turned a page in a ledger. 
The paper rustled noisily. Bartley's eyes were fastened on the moving second hand of the big clock. It seemed a race. Would the answer never come? Then the man spoke crisply. "'Hello, Arden 500. Has the train arrived that passes St. Mary's? Just in? There's a passenger on it. Charles Redway, a boy about seventeen. Get him to the telephone, please, if you have to carry him. I'll hold the wire. Thank you.' And now a new fear came to the captain of the nine. The train had arrived. Suppose Redway slipped away in the crowd. The boy had seen messengers sent out from public telephones and railroad depots to catch persons. Often they failed. Suppose they didn't find Redway. His breath caught in his throat. Slowly the minutes passed. Bartley, nervously twitching his fingers, was conscious that the man was watching him. To the captain's mind the delay could only mean that Redway could not be found. For the first time in his life he realized what is meant by cold sweat. He wet his lips and wondered at their dryness. "'If they missed him,' he began. "'Hello,' called the man's voice. "'This you, Redway?' Bartley's heart went into his throat. Then, "'Hold the wire.' The man turned around. "'Here you are, Sonny.' Hungrily the boy clutched at the receiver, and when he spoke into the mouthpiece his voice shook with excitement. "'Hello, Redway. This is Bartley. Oh, I'm glad I caught you. We found the telegram. You must come back.' "'And my father dying, perhaps,' came a faintly indignant voice over the wire. "'I didn't think this of you, Dick.' "'But it isn't!' shouted the captain in his eagerness. "'We investigated. That telegram never came from Detroit.' "'It did,' faintly from over the wire. "'Didn't I see it?' "'Yes, but Kennedy and I investigated. Somebody wrote the message in the St. Mary's office. We saw the agent. It's a fake message to get you out of the game. It is, Redway, it is. We've investigated.' A long silence. At last that same faint voice. "'You're not fooling me, Dick.' "'Fooling you?' the captain almost sobbed. "'Do you think I'd tell you this if your father were really ill?' Then the sob became a shout of joy. "'What? You'll come back on the first train? Good. I'll tell Jenkins. Oh, I'm glad I caught you, Redway.' A trembling boy, his nerves aflutter now that the suspense was over, backed away from the telephone. The hotel clerk, silent up to this time, tapped his desk. "'One dollar and forty cents charges,' he announced. The captain of the nine suddenly felt a little thrill of fright. He had forgotten that long-distance telephoning is expensive, and he had less than one dollar. He had heard of men being arrested for not paying hotel board bills, and perhaps they arrested persons for not paying telephone charges, too. It wasn't a comforting thought. "'I haven't that much,' he began weakly. "'Guess I'll have to pay it and help you out again, Sonny,' said the cheery voice. "'I'll pay you back,' cried Bartley, "'just as soon—' "'Pay me at the game Saturday,' smiled the man. "'Are you coming?' "'Couldn't keep me away,' and this time the man laughed. Bartley remembered how the man had asked him if Redway was the St. Mary's catcher, and how when speaking over the telephone he had given Redway's age. The captain thought he knew the reason for the other's kindness. "'You're a St. Mary's man,' he announced, with a feeling of pride that it was so. "'Wrong,' was the answer. I'm for Rockton. Here's your change, Mr. Caldwell, called the hotel clerk. The name sent a staggering thought crashing through Bartley's mind. Are you related to Hooks Caldwell, the Rockton pitcher? he demanded. He's my boy, Sonny. He's going to pitch against us Saturday, isn't he? I hope so. We wouldn't have a chance without Redway, said Bartley. I guess you knew that, didn't you? I did. Murray's injured, isn't he? And I thought I recognized you when you came up the steps, that's why I followed you in. I can tell you the batting average of every boy on your nine. You take a lot of interest in such things when your boy's on the other side. I keep posted. But there isn't much fun in winning on a fluke, is there, Sonny?" Bartley shook his head. His eyes were on the ground. A Rockton man helping St. Mary's to get back its star catcher. Suddenly he looked up and held out his hand. "'If we can't win,' he said soberly, "'I want you to know that I hope Hooks Caldwell is the pitcher who beats us.'" End of chapter 11